This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. For some five decades, economic relations between the U.S. and Cuba were ossified in policies born during the Cold War. On December 17th last year, President Barack Obama took a major step towards thawing this freeze when he announced that the U.S. and Cuba would work towards re-establishing diplomatic relations and potentially lift the economic embargo between the two countries. What will this historic change mean for economic relations between the U.S. and Cuba? What opportunities and risks should American companies consider as they explore the business potential of one of the largest markets in the Caribbean? In order to answer these questions, Knowledge at Wharton spoke with Wharton Management Professor Mauro Guillen, the director of the Lauder Institute, Fikiri Diaz-Kala, CEO of Tresmaris Group, a private equity investment firm in Miami, and Gustavo Arnavat, a former Obama administration official and U.S. Executive Director to the Inter-American Development Bank, or IDB. So, Fakiri, Gustavo, and Mauro, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, as you know, on uh, December 17th, President, President Barack Obama announced a major policy change with regard to Cuba, uh, which could lead potentially to the restoration of diplomat- diplomatic relations and also end the embargo that has been in place for many decades. To begin with, I wonder if we could start by talking about what factors on the U.S. side as well as on the Cuban side led to this change in policy. Mauro, would you like to start us off? Well, very quickly, obviously, uh, you know, the Obama administration is frustrated at the, uh, um, you know, situation with uh, on many uh, fronts, right, and has decided to take, uh, you know, executive action on a topic uh, on which uh, there is little support uh, on the Republican side, but there is, I think, a lot of support in U.S. public opinion. Uh, after, you know, many, many decades of an embargo that hasn't worked, uh, it is worth pursuing another course of action. I think that has been the single most important uh, factor here. And also, I think uh, the fact that um, it seems as if uh, the Cuban regime is looking for uh, ways out of uh, the uh, very difficult situation from an economic point of view in which they find themselves. Uh, Gustavo Fakiri, do you want to add something to what Mauro just said? Yeah, no, I agree with uh, with Mauro. I think it's... Um uh, first of all, the recognition that our policy of isolating Cuba has been largely ineffective, uh, certainly to the extent that the objective originally was to cause regime change. Uh, clearly, that has not uh, occurred. Uh, even um, with respect to the objective of uh, trying to modify the, the political and economic policies of Cuba, uh, although we've seen some movement on the economic front over the last uh, couple of decades, uh, and certainly, the last you know few years or so, in order to uh, to attract more foreign investment in Cuba, on the political front, <clears throat> certainly the embargo has not had that uh, that effect. Um, so I think the administration was looking for a different uh, approach. Uh, I think as Mauro also suggested, public opinion on this issue has changed, uh, including within the Cuban American community. Over the last ten years, especially, more and more public opinion surveys suggest that the Cuban um, Cuban Americans, uh, particularly living in South Florida are more open to uh, the concept of engaging the, uh, the Cuban government. Uh, and I would add a third factor, which is that um, it, uh, to the, you know, Cuba, the Cuban government has been very successful in its diplomatic uh, engagement with countries around the world, and certainly in Latin America. 
Uh, and I think that our current policy stance, or at least our stance prior to the 17th of December, was keeping the United States from having uh, a better engagement with other countries in the region. Fakiri, anything to add? Well, I would say that I think that the Obama administration is looking at this potentially as a legacy issue. This, this, if the Obama administration is able to succeed here after all of the American presidents that, that have not been able to succeed, it's similar to when Nixon went and uh, opened up China. So I think that there is a certain amount of uh, legacy building here that we should be looking into. Well, the U.S. Congress will obviously need to approve the lifting of the embargo. Since the Republicans control both the House and the Senate, how do you expect this to play out and how long do you think it might take? Uh, Gustavo, since you are a former uh, official in the Obama administration, perhaps I could turn to you first to see what you think. Well, certainly um, uh, you're correct that what is often referred to as, as the embargo uh, is a uh, collection of, of rules, regulations, and laws uh, some of which fall solely within the purview of the executive branch. And I think the president is acting within his authority uh, to liberalize those rules in order to uh, promote greater engagement with the Cuban, uh, with Cuba, uh, to promote trade um, and other uh, strengthen commercial ties in general. Uh, nonetheless, um, the the embargo's uh, biggest strength. Uh, is based on the Helms-Burton uh, law, uh, which was passed by the Congress and signed into law by President uh, Clinton in 1996. Uh, and so in order for there to be truly robust commercial ties between Cuba and the United States, uh, that law will have to be uh, uh, amended or, or gotten rid of uh, altogether. Uh, there are a number of um, members of Congress, both in the Senate as well as the House, uh, that have made it very clear that they are opposed to uh, the president's uh, move. Um, nonetheless, um, uh, the disagreement with the president uh, is probably not what it would, it would have been if this action had taken place 10 or 15 years ago or so. So I think you can find um, a good number of members in Congress who are at least open-minded. Uh, and what I expect will happen over the next several weeks is that there will be hearings, certainly, uh, in the Senate, but also potentially in the House, uh, to explore uh, Cuba policy in their depth, something that really hasn't been done in a number of years. We have to wait and see what the reaction is going to be. Uh, interestingly, Senator Corker uh, from China, who is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, announced a few, a few days ago he, <clears throat> he questioned uh, the efficiency or the effectiveness of the embargo uh, and then suggested that uh, we would have to have hearings over the next you know, few weeks or so uh, to see uh, what the best course of action is. So, so although uh, one can expect some fairly ferocious opposition from some members of Congress, both on the Republican side and a few on the Democratic side, uh, most importantly, uh, Bob Menendez of New Jersey, who's always been a stalwart um, supporter of the, of the embargo, um, I, I think that we have to see how things play out for the next a couple of months or so. Well, and, and to add to that, McCool, I mean, we have somebody like Ron Paul, who's likely a presidential candidate, uh, who is very much in support of lifting the embargo and, and has come out and, and said it very clearly. So I think a lot of the Republicans from the farm states uh, are supportive of, of this move by the president and of further moves. So I don't think it's a one-issue 
one-party issue as, as at times has been portrayed by the media. Now, since you mentioned the farm states, uh, it's interesting that agribusiness companies like Cargill have a couple of days ago announced that they are forming a lobby to ask for the embargo to be lifted. Uh, not, not, not to uh, make a pun of it, but do you see this as sort of the low-hanging fruit uh, on the economic front? Uh, what do you, what opportunities do you see in the agribusiness market? Well, I'll, I'll take a stab at it, and, and Gustavo can follow on, and, and Maud as well. But Cuba is already importing uh, a significant amount of uh, ag products from the U.S. on a cash basis. Uh, every week we have uh, ships leaving South Florida uh, with containers full of uh, American products uh, going into the island. Uh, and the trade is in the multi-hundred millions of dollars. Uh, so I think what we're seeing now is additional farm states thinking that the opportunity for them could be very significant uh, if things were to, to be liberalized as well. Yeah, so uh, there was a lot of pressure um, a decade ago, um, and actually a decade to 15 years ago, on the part of uh, farm states and governors of farm states uh, who had access capacity wanting to export uh, their agricultural products to Cuba. Uh, and that resulted in the passage of the Trade Sanction Reform Export Enhancement Act of 2004, uh, which enabled uh, those export to, exports to take place. Nonetheless, there were severe restrictions on the ability of uh, Cuba to finance those transactions. So clearly, to the extent that that act uh, and the embargo in general can be amended to permit uh, financing, I think that's something that would benefit uh, those uh, those farm states who clearly are very interested, I think, in, in selling additional uh, product to, uh, to Cuba. Uh, Mauro, in addition to agribusiness, what do you think are some of the main sectors of the U.S. and Cuban economies where collaboration or investment could begin first? Well, obviously, tourism, anything related to uh, services, um, including financial services, are obvious uh, areas of collaboration. But let's not forget also that Cuba has become, over the last um, 20 years or so, quite active in the healthcare field, even in biotech. Uh, so there's also other, uh, you know, parts of the economy that people are presently not thinking about. Uh, where there could be increasing collaboration. I mean, what makes Cuba so unique, let's not forget about this, is that it's so close to the United States, right? And so over time, uh, you know, give it uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, I mean, the Cuban economy is going to become very, very closely related to the U.S. economy if uh, we manage to overcome the political obstacles. Yeah, proximity is definitely an important factor, uh, but also I think you have <clears throat> the fact that uh, the educational system in Cuba, I think is recognized as one of the best in, in Latin America. So you have a relatively you know, highly educated uh, population that I think will be able to take advantage uh, of any uh, certainly economic openings in Cuba, uh, particularly if those are accompanied by increased foreign investment. Uh, and, and beyond tourism, you know, uh, Cuba has huge needs everywhere, uh, including infrastructure and housing. And the question, of course, is going to be one of financing. You know, who finances? Uh, the growth in those in those sectors, and that's where foreign investment comes in, but also potentially uh, multilateral financing uh, from the World Bank, from the IMF, the IFC, the IDB, uh, to the extent that's uh, allowable under U.S. law. The, the knowledge economy in Cuba actually is, is significantly stronger than people give it credit for. 
you're looking at a country that has one of the highest literacy rates in the hemisphere, uh, one of the highest college graduate rates, uh, PhDs in the hard sciences, and, and Cuba actually has been producing physicists, mathematicians, and so forth, that either at times have been exported as teachers or have been exported into other countries. Uh, I think that we got to consider Cuba as, as a startup nation and, and take a look at some of the similarities of how Israel was able to build a knowledge economy uh, with a lot of the similarities that, that the Cuban economy has. Is there an entrepreneurial ecosystem in Cuba that could attract investment in technology startups? Uh, I wonder if uh, you know you could speak a little bit to the potential there. So we, we have seen some very, very early efforts. Uh, there is a program called Startup Cuba that uh, that is being uh, put together. Uh, there has been a number of uh, Cuban hackathons uh, that are pretty interesting. Uh, Facebook actually is hosting one coming up uh, in this month. Um, Cuban uh, developers actually at times, recent arrivals in Miami are very thought after. Uh, so the more that knowledge reaches the island, the more uh, computing power is available in the island. I think that uh, we're going to be able to, to get a better sense just how entrepreneurial that ecosystem can be. In addition to, uh, now, uh, Gustavo, you mentioned Helms Burton, which is obviously a, a, a big regulatory uh, hurdle. Uh, in addition to that, what would you consider some of the greatest challenges uh, both legal and regulatory in, in being able to uh, exploit the economic potential of this partnership? Well, certainly um, there are uh, potential impediments on the U.S. side, um, but let's not forget that Cuba has its own uh, legal system uh, which imposes um, uh, limitations on, on foreign investment and also the kinds of economic activities in which the Cuban people can engage. Uh, now, over the last, especially, you know, several years, the Cuban government has um, has uh, permitted um, the, um, the the engagement by individuals in the private sector. I believe about 300 different uh, types of activities, professional activities. Um, but 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 it's nonetheless. Um, I think what the Cuban government has done this time around and. You know, let me just go back up a second. The Cubans in 1992 amended their constitution in response to uh, a uh, you know whopping uh, 35% decline in GDP uh, because of the implosion of the Soviet bloc and the um, you know, is the, and therefore the the reduction in in, in hard currency uh, being sent to uh, Cuba uh, by the by the Soviets. They had to realize that the only way they're going to grow economically and, quite frankly, survive is if they increased uh, and began to attract uh, foreign investment. So they amended the Constitution back in 1982 uh, to allow that to occur. And that was, a, that was a huge legal change that took place at the time. Nonetheless, the Cubans, I think, by and large, um, have been, I think, slow uh, in changing their laws, um, particularly because... They're, they're, they're taking a um, sort of a, a, a wait-and-see approach or, or a slower approach, if you will. I think they need to, the government in particular, I think, uh, wants to make sure they're comfortable with the kinds of changes that uh, will take place on the private sector um, you know, before 
uh, opening up, uh, you know, in a, in a much more liberal uh, way. So while changes clearly would have to take place on the U.S. side in order to permit greater investment on the part of uh, U.S. Uh, individuals, I think the Cuban economy and the Cuban government will have to make changes there as well in order to provide for you know, greater protection, for example, uh, for investors uh, who are going to take, uh, obviously, risk, as all investors do in any country, want to make sure that they have access to a legal system that will be fair um, in interpreting laws uh, and interpreting contracts, for example, that are entered into between U.S. parties and, and Cuban parties. Now, Mauro, in addition to the step of normalizing relations between the U.S. and Cuba, do you feel that this is also uh, potentially a long-term development in which Cuba will become more fully integrated into the global market economy, like China? Or, or what kind of uh, trajectory do you see for Cuba? Well, I, I think that is clearly, clearly the, uh, you know, the ultimate outcome. Uh, the issue is how long is it going to take for that to happen and how exactly is that going to happen? Because as we know, there are several ways of making the transition from a centrally planned economy to the market. I mean, in Eastern Europe, in Central Asia, uh, with China, with Vietnam, in each of these cases, we see different ways of uh, making that uh, transition, which is a very difficult transition, right? I mean, Cuba has going its way a, a number of things. It was mentioned earlier that it has a highly educated population, but it's also that it's not a huge economy, right? And it is very close to the United States, and ultimately that's going to prove, uh, you know, being a, a, a huge advantage. I would also like to add that Cuba also needs to think uh, very carefully about two, uh, two issues uh, in the next uh, few months and, uh, you know, maybe a couple of years. One is uh, land ownership and uh, real estate ownership. Uh, there have been some reforms. Um, but, you know, technically speaking, all land in Cuba is owned by the government and it is leased out to uh, cooperatives or it is leased out to uh, individual farmers. Uh, but the rules are very restrictive. Uh, so they're going to have to do something about that. The other area has to do with, um, with uh, currency. Uh, so right now, Cuba has two currencies, one that is convertible uh, at a pre-specified rate and another one that is not. And this is uh, creating a lot of distortions in the economy. Uh, moreover, the relationship between the two currencies is different, whether we're talking about transactions between individuals as opposed to the state-owned enterprises in, in Cuba. So there's a, a whole range of issues, right? I mean, Cuba has been going or organizing its economy in a particular way for the last uh, 50, 60 years. And now, uh, you know, we uh, are hopefully beginning a process by which it's going to be organized eventually in a very different way. And that process of transition from all points of view, um, you know, the legal, the economic, uh, the financial, the monetary, uh, the regulatory, it's going to be very, very complicated. And it cannot happen all at once. It cannot happen overnight. Um, you know, we know from previous transitions that uh, gradual transitions such as the ones that were staged in uh, China or Vietnam were better than those uh, that followed the so-called shock therapy. Uh, recipes. And that was the way that Russia, the Czech Republic, and other countries in Eastern Europe made the transition. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but uh, essentially, there are many important decisions that need to be made in the next few months that will uh, set Cuba, hopefully, on the right path uh, towards making that transition. But the transition itself will necessarily take place over a very long period of time. As this transition takes place, uh, you know, uh, United States uh, uh, firms have been barred by the embargo from engaging directly with Cuba. But I wonder, 
what lessons American businesses could learn from companies in Europe and other parts of the world, uh, perhaps Spain, that, that have actually been active in Cuba and, and, and what can be learned through that experience. Fakiri, maybe you could start us off on that. So I would say that the, the most important lesson to be learned is that this is a sovereign nation uh, that has managed to run its own policy uh, for the last 56 years. And as such, uh, this is not some colony uh, of anyone for us to go and, and impose our will. Uh, I really think that the Cuban government has reached this decision, which is to uh, begin engaging in conversations, and at this stage, uh, those conversations are going to be the ones that are going to lead to where their interest lies in, in opening their economy. Um, if you think about it, there was a time after the special period, which was a time after 89, where a lot of countries went into Cuba very aggressively, the Canadians, the Spanish, for example. Um, and some of them are operating there quite successfully. Today you still have Sol Melilla that has a number of resorts, and Cuba is one of their most significant markets. Uh, you have uh, a publicly traded real estate investment company uh, out of Europe that owns a significant amount of uh, property, real estate, and other goods in Cuba. It's called Save Investment. Uh, they're audited. They provide an annual report, and Pricewaterhouse uh, does their legal work. So they are example of companies that are operating in Cuba today, uh, and we have to look at those and we have to do the research on them uh, to see what role the American companies uh, will be able to play. The, the one thing I, I, I wanted to, to add to that is that, uh, like, like any investment in any other country, particularly emerging market, I think it's important for the United States uh, companies uh, to to identify uh, potential and trustworthy local partners um, in whatever sector society those partners uh, are who can uh, help them understand the local um, you know, lay of the land, if you will, uh, and make further introductions uh, within uh, Cuba that I think will be essential uh, in order for them to gain the kind of entree that they will need uh, to succeed uh, in Cuba. Uh, well, I have one final question for all three of you. And that is, uh, if you had, you know, in, uh, on, on, on the call with us right now uh, or in this room with us right now, uh, a group of CEOs and board members who are asking your advice to develop a Cuba strategy, uh, both opportunities and risks, uh, what would your advice be to them so that they could make well-informed decisions about Cuba? I think that um, you know any U.S. company that currently exports its goods and services uh, to uh, to Latin America uh, should uh, consider Cuba as a potential market, uh, but it has to um, examine the opportunity at the same time as the risks involved. Uh, U.S. law clearly uh, and regulations are uh, changing quickly. Uh, we anticipate that the new regulations on the part of the at least Department of Treasury will be coming out in the next few weeks or so, and that will be the first sign of uh, you know, how aggressive uh, or forward-looking the administration wants to be in connection with increasing ties with, with Cuba. Um, and um, so, uh, you, know, you know, carefully examine uh, what U.S. law allows, what Cuban law allows, 
um, and the opportunity, you know, from a market uh, perspective. Um, but keep in mind that uh, you know Cuba is still a relatively closed economy, uh, and so they have to be, uh, you know, exercise some caution going forward, uh, as with any other investment uh, in a developing country. I would say that you you have to engage in very in-depth research um, as to what's there in Cuba today. They need to get to know the facts. If you look at the mainstream media, it has really been portraying a lot of uh, superfluous stories. Uh, I think they need to get boots on the ground, and they need to do the due diligence that anyone will do in any emerging economy as you're looking at it in order to generate a strategy. So research, boots on the ground, uh, and understanding really what the opportunities lie. Well, I think Fakiri and Gustavo have, uh, you know, identified all of the uh, key, uh, you know, pieces of advice that I think we can give uh, CEOs now thinking about Cuba. Try to learn as much as you can. Be ready. Um, you know, maybe the big opportunities are going to be farther down the road, but you need to start doing the due diligence. You need to start uh, thinking and learning about Cuba now uh, so that you're ready when the opportunity uh, or the opportunities start presenting themselves as the various regulations as, uh, you know, the two countries essentially move uh, closer together. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.